6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. If you have a hurt that isn't really justified, you can deal with that. It bothers you, but okay. It's when the hurt is justified, you can't let go of it. And you become in bondage to it. You see, they're the ones that are the most crucial crucial to leave at the cross. Give it to the Lord. They're the toughest one to let go because they're justified. Man, do you know what he did to me? Don't care. The more justified it is, the more urgent it is that you get freed from the bondage of that. Interesting. It's one of the things that makes her book so, so valuable, so practical. Lest any root of bitterness. Boy, I bet you every one of you could jot down a few people you've met in your life that are destroying themselves and their lives because they nurse a root of bitterness. And it's not the person that caused the bitterness that's destroying them. It's they're destroying their, themselves by not letting go of that. Boy. And if you want to know the practical aspects of letting go of that, take a look at Dan's books. The Way of Agape and Be Transformed. They, they lay it out skillfully, practically, in real terms. The most dangerous hurts are the justified ones. Boy, let me tell you what he did to me. Boy, 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 boy. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now we're shifting into getting right now to think. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person. The word is pornos, which technically means a prostitute, but Esau wasn't necessarily, that's not the thought here. Fornication here, the illusion here is a spiritual fornication. What is that? Turning from God to the things of the flesh. Rather than his birthright and things that he should have held dear, he sold it for a mess of porridge. Mess of porridge. The word profane, by the way, comes from two Latin words. In the English word profane comes from two Latin words. Pro, meaning either before it or against it. And phanum, which means the temple. That's what the word profane, that's where the word profane comes from. And we get the same flavor in our, our use of it. And bebelos, which means lawful to be trodden. He demeaned spiritual things. And that whole, you know the story about Esau and, and how he uh, sold his birthright for a mess of porridge. The main point was that he demeaned it. He didn't take it seriously. That was the sin. Now, the reason this is coming up in this epistle is his readers, the writer's readers, are also likely to be victims of their own irreversible decision, which will cut off blessings. Esau made a decision that was irreversible, and that cut him off. And he's drawing deliberately a parallel here that the readers will understand, because they all know the story of Esau, who sold his birthright for a, 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 you know, a cup of porridge. 
Now, firstborn status, let's understand firstborn status. Being the firstborn generally meant you were the head, headship of the family, and you're also the high priest of the family. They're two separate ideas, but they're together. And it also meant you got a double portion of the inheritance. So that was a big deal. Big deal. In Genesis 27, we have the whole story about how Esau forfeited his birthright. He didn't just get cheated out of it by uh, Jacob. He was, but that wasn't the point. He had already sold it to him for a cup of soup. So the firstborn, that's not the only case where it's been bypassed. Cain was bypassed by Seth. He blew it, didn't he? Japheth by Shem. Ishmael by Isaac. Esau by Jacob. Reuben by two. Judah and Joseph. Because he, he, he messed up and his birthright was split up a little bit. We'll talk about that. Aaron was, not, was, the, was the firstborn. Moses wasn't. But Moses gets picked. And all of David's brothers, he, he, he was the youngest. He, he bypassed the whole bunch. So the firstborn which is a, a title, yes, he's born first, but it's a, it's a title of stature. And it can be bypassed by someone who isn't born first. Remember Reuben. He was the natural heir. He was disavowed because of his illicit relationship with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi, both of them blew it. They would have been next. But because of their crime at Shechem, they blew it. Judah was the next in line. Then Joseph. Joseph got a double portion. And he was favored as firstborn from Rachel, Jacob's favorite. And of course, they get split up between Ephraim and Manasseh, his two, his, the two, his two sons. J uh, um, Jacob's grandsons get adopted. And that's why you have 13 tribes to choose from when you need 12. Okay. We're down to verse 17. For ye know how that afterward, speaking of Esau, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. You remember, he desired to, when it came to the doing, he wanted it badly. It was too late then, wasn't it? It was too late. He found no place of repentance. Now, I want to highlight something else here that many people miss, even so many of the commentators. Who is not repenting here? Good for you. Good for you. Exactly. Isaac was. Because Isaac had already sworn. He, he, he couldn't change his mind. There was no place of repentance. He could. Esau had changed his mind. Esau had repented. I want to show you the use of the word. See, we always jump to the conclusion that the word repentance refers that, that it's a, 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 a verb of action rather than a, a, the, the object. In other words, it's and earlier in chapter 6 we talked about there is no repentance, meaning it's God that can't repent because he swore an oath. And that's the whole point of the references there that everybody misses. And that use of the word there is the key to unlocking the understanding of, of chapter 6. And that same use by the writer is used here. Esau found no place of repentance. You mean he wasn't repenting? Boy, was he repenting. But it's too late because it's a done deal. Just as in chapter 6, it's... The analogy is being drawn with God there and the inheritance with the root passage at Kadesh Barnea where God swore an oath. The people that didn't enter in the promised land were forgiven. They repented and God forgave them, but they still didn't inherit because He swore an oath. So it wasn't their sin that's being judged there. It's their um, uh, 
Lack of inheritance. And that's important. Go back and look at your notes for chapter 6 for that one. Metanoia. A change of mind. But it's Isaac that couldn't change his mind. Not, not Esau. It refers to a reversibility of a purpose or something to be done. See, the term really means something a little different than we impute to it. And we want to be careful what we impute to some of these words. So we're going to see a couple of contrasts here. Verses 18 to 21, if the Jewish believers go back to the old system, they're going to be returning to a place that was inaugurated by utter terror. We're going to have a description. They're going to be reminded of what it was like to not listen to what God is telling them to do. And in verses 18, 19, 20, and 21, those four verses are going to deal with a negative disaster that they're facing if they don't make the right decision. The next few verses, next three verses after that, is going to contrast, it's going to, it's going to point out how they would leave a place of privilege and grace as exemplified by the heavenly city. So on the one hand, they'll be embracing terror on the one hand, and they'll be abandoning the citizenship in something highly desirable. Well, that's a two-edged sword if you ever saw one. So let's take a look at it. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. He's recounting here the, uh, the um, horror, terrors at Mount Sinai. And Moses went up there, how the place shook, and this mount couldn't be touched. Even animals that touched it died. And it burned with fire. That You've seen pictures of the Jabal Allahs, even today. It's the, black, the top is black and so on. Nor unto the blackness or darkness of tempest, and the sound of a trumpet. The trumpet of God, only mentioned two places, in Exodus 19 and also in the, at the Habrazzo. And the voice of the words, which voice that they that heard entreated that they wouldn't hear it anymore. They couldn't stand it. Strange stuff, isn't it? For ye are not come to the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire. See, these readers have not yet come to that place of terror. He's warning them what it's going to be like. In their case, it's going to be the destruction of Jerusalem. It's only two years away. It's coming. They have not yet come to a mountain which cannot be touched, as have the Israelites in Exodus 19. The, the, they have not come to the mountain burning with fire. They have not come to a place of darkness, blackness, tempest. All this is out of Exodus 19. The sound of the trumpet. They have not yet heard the sound of the trumpet. They have not heard the voice of the words of God, which were such that the Israelites begged not to hear the voice again. This verse is going to be pivotal to an argument he's going to make it a few verses later. So understand this. They begged back there in Exodus 19. We don't want to hear, we, they couldn't stand the voice of God. It was too terrifying. For they could not endure that which was commanded, that if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Moses felt the terror more than anybody else. Even Moses was repelled by the scene on Mount Sinai and was not attracted to it. He was terrified of it. See, Moses' law was enacted in the context of terror. To go back to the law, the, argue, the, guy's writing, the writer is saying, is to go back to that place of terror. Okay? Paul teaches that going back to the law is returning to a ministry of death and condemnation in 2 Corinthians 3. 
The second letter of Corinth, from verse 2 to 18, says the same essential message. Jot it in your notes. You can check it out on, on, at your own leisure. Now, that's the negative side. Let's look at the positive side, verses 22 to 24. As believers, they're not at Mount Sinai under a system of law. They have come to a system of grace. But ye have come to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, he's going to talk about here. What is he talking about heavenly? He's talking about the city in heaven that it's destined to be the abode of the redeemed. That's, see, all through this entire epistle, what's in view and held in view is the kingdom, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So verse 22, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. Now that's not talking about the hill there. It's an idiom, of course, for Jerusalem. And unto the city of the living God. Is that the Jerusalem we know? No, that's idiomatic. The heavenly Jerusalem. It's got three different titles here. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. And to an innumerable company of angels. Innumerable company of angels. Okay, three different names for the city. The angels are, of course, mentioned in Deuteronomy 33, Daniel 7, elsewhere. Jesus spoke of this city where he is now preparing a place for us in John 14. I go into my father's house and many mansions and so forth. Paul spoke of the Jerusalem of God as being a city that is free and not in bondage. He's making a contrast here. That'll be amplified in Galatians 4. This is the city that Abraham sought. And we saw that in chapter 11 last time, the city that David had his heart on. The writer's going to mention this again in the next chapter that we're going to be into. John describes the city as the abode of all the redeemed of all time who enter into it by resurrection or translation. And that's Revelation 21, the whole chapter 21 plus part of chapter 22. The city, the, the, the New Jerusalem is our typical shorthand for this. Continuing. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. The general assembly, the word here in the English doesn't capture it. The word actually in the Greek, Pentagoras, means a festive gathering. It's a celebration. It isn't just a general assembly like you might have in school or something. No, this is a, the, the, the Greek term implies a, a festive gathering. And it's the church of the firstborn. And the most competent scholars here recognize this is a term used of the Jewish believers. That's who he's writing to. Which are written in heaven, and to the judge of all, and to the spirits of men made perfect. Jewish believers are called first fruits in James chapter 1, verse 18. And the spirits of just men made perfect. This is interesting. Because they don't have bodies yet, even the ones that have died. The author calls them spirits, which points out that they're not yet united with their bodies because the resurrection of the Old Testament saints has not yet taken place. Interesting. There's a couple of places in the Scripture that that distinction can be useful. But it's interesting that the author also makes a clear distinction between Old Testament saints and church saints. Interesting observation. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Why Abel? Because Abel was the first blood that was, was Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. And by the way, there's two, two words for new in the Greek. The one that's been used in the past in these previous things is new in quality or new in nature. When we talked about the new covenant back there in a few chapters, it was that word, uh, kainos, uh, in the Greek. 
Here, though, he uses a different word, interestingly enough, neos, which means recently born, new in point of time. Why? Because Jesus had just died recently, in, in, in relatively recent terms. Okay? So that's the one that's being used here. And Jesus is the only blood that can bring one into God's presence. And that's why the contrast is made with Abel. Abel was the first person to offer a blood sacrifice. The first one to offer a blood sacrifice was Abel. Okay? And so he, he's using that idiomatically of the blood sacrifice under the, under the Levitical system. And interestingly enough, he takes that it precedes the, the giving of the law. That's interesting. Well, that leads us now to the portion of Scripture here that's known as the fifth warning. There's five warnings in the epistle. This is the, the, the fifth one. Verses 25 through 29. The background for all of this is Exodus 19 and 20. That's at Sinai and the giving of the law and all that business. Terrifying stuff. Um, with all the special effects and so forth, the Ten Commandments movement didn't capture the terror, the awe of all of that. The people did not want to talk to God directly. They plead for somebody else to handle it. And that was not what God wanted. He wanted a nation of kings and priests. So the final, this final climactic warning compares the shortcomings of the Exodus generation with the shortcomings of the Jewish Christians that are the readers. Okay? Now Paul elsewhere referenced those things as written for the benefit. Of, 1 Corinthians 10 deals with the same material and points out how that was all for our benefit. The examples from the Exodus generation are for our benefit. So let's jump into this. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. See the logic? Again, it's the, 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 the Cal Vomer uh, uh, Hebrew logic. The, the, lesser, the, the greater even more than the lesser. And uh, so here he, he spoke on earth. How much more are we indicted if, he spe if he's speaking, you know, as he speaketh from him, heaven? See that you refuse not him that speaketh. And the word see here is the emphatic position in the Greek, so it's stronger than English. It's more like beware lest you refuse him. Not just see, that you, it's a stronger structure. It emphasizes an obligation that they have in light of what they, he had previously said. In other words, the previous the verses, as I mentioned, from 18 to 24. The readers were in danger, just like their forebears under Moses. Uh, they're, quote, they're, they're stopping their ears not to listen. They're going to go back to the Levitical system. They're not listening that they're free of all that. You see? And this voice shook the heavens as well as the earth back then. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet more, once more I shake, not the earth only, but also heaven. That's moving the decimal point over. huh? There was a shaking in history that was so bad, the voice then, back then, shook the earth. That's not only Exodus 19, it's in Judges, it's Psalm 68, 77, Psalm 114. You find echoes of that throughout the Psalms. That voice, back then, shook the earth. Next time, it's going to be more so. Yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And that quote that the writer is using comes from Haggai 2.6. And it refers to the shaking that's going to occur before the second coming of Christ and the judgments of the great tribulation that precede the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. That's, you know, that's Revelation 19 and all that's associated with it. Whew. 
And this word, yet once more, he's quoting from the Haggai 6, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things which are shaken as of things which are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now it's going to be shaken so bad that only the things that he wants to remain will remain. Everything else is gone, you see. Yet once more, he's requoting this phrase from Haggai you know, to draw the application. Those things which are unshakable are what? Eternal. So only the eternal things will remain. The writer implies that the shaking has already begun in the structure of the, of the grammar here. But the current shaking is merely the prelude to the shaking that will bring an end to the present system. He anticipated a very imminent destruction of Jerusalem. It occurred within two years. We'll give you the background when we get to chapter 13. And some interesting postscripts. Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. There's the wherefore again. All these things link in a chain. And it's a climactic chain. And he's down to the finish wire here. The millennial messianic kingdom will give way and usher in the eternal order. Even it is going to be superseded. Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and so forth. And again, he's just reemphasizing the point he made more than once before, the need to appropriate grace. And that echo started in chapter 4 of this epistle and has continued all the way through. Five major warnings we've been through. The danger of drifting in chapter 2. The danger of disobedience. I thought we're saved. Yes, we are saved, but we still are, our behavior matters. Failing to mature is part of the problem. They were stagnated. They were failing to go forward. The, the allowing willful sin, big mistake. And of course, here we're talking just being indifferent itself is a disaster for them. You can't stand, there's a danger in not going forward. What he's saying is great loss, the loss of your inheritance awaits those who fail to persevere, the loss of reward and honor in Christ's coming millennial kingdom. That's the issue all the way through here. Revelation 3.11 summarizes it. Behold, Jesus says, I come quickly. And what do you do? Hold fast. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Does that mean someone can take your salvation? No. Because that's, that's Christ and the Father's responsibility and commitment. As exemplified many places, but John 10, verse 28 29 nails it. No, hold fast that thou hast that no man take thy crown. You can, can't lose salvation. You can lose your crown. You can lose your rewards. And the final, <laughs> the final line in this chapter is disturbing. One little reminder, gang. For our God is a consuming fire. Ooh, that's a tough close, isn't it? He's quoting Deuteronomy 4.24. And this phrase is intended to point out that God is a God of grace indeed, but He also is a God of judgment for those who fail to appropriate the grace. Wow. Okay. In our next session, I want you to read chapter 13. I also want you to review your notes on the Messianic or Millennial Kingdom. And that's been all through this chapter, this, uh, this epistle. And uh, chapter 1 several times, chapter 4, 6, 10, 12. Review your notes on that because we'll be dealing with that as we go forward. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer.
Well, Father, we thank you for the writer of this epistle. We thank you that he has put together such a incisive summary of what we'll be facing at that Bema seat, Father. We thank you, Father, for our justification, which was 100% guaranteed by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that we can enjoy the security of our justification in Him. And yet, Father, we thank you for the alert, the wake-up call, that there's more for us if we are diligent, that there's an inheritance set aside for us if we're faithful. And Father, we recognize that we, can't not, we cannot achieve that inheritance through our works, only through the works of the Spirit in us. So Father, Father we would just pray that you would help us discern, help us to discern what you would have of us in the days ahead. And help us to take advantage of the empowering of that Spirit that we might be more effective stewards of these opportunities that remain before us, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, that we might acquit ourselves effectively for you, Father, not by power nor by might, but by your Spirit, Father. As we commit ourselves without any reservations whatsoever, into your hands. Indeed, in the name of Yeshua, our high priest, who ever liveth to make intercession for us, our king, who indeed will rule eternally, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.